it's not a one session, that it's a three-part class because this could have been a 20-part series to, to really do justice to this issue. Um, and the diversity of ideas, the complexity of ideas involved here. But I, I do hope you'll join all three. There'll be a different flavor to each of them. And uh, I wanna thank Pam, Pam Bueller here at BBM for her assistance in, uh, in putting together uh, and managing this program with me. It's been a great partner. And thank you all for being here. I know others are gonna join um, and um, they will shortly. So I wanna start with a nigun. I wanna start with a melody. And as you know, in the Jewish tradition, every nigun has a story to it. Um, and so even though there's no words to the nigun, there's a story behind it. And this nigun comes from me'ain olam haba, which means a taste of the world to come. And what's interesting here is we think of the next world as sequential, right? There's this world and then there's the next world. But the Hasidic tradition takes a different approach, which is that you can access, to some degree, the next world in this world, the next life in this life. And the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidut, said, you are where your consciousness is. Which is to say, if your consciousness can transcend the earthly realm, we can be in what we call Olam Haba, in the next life. And Rabbi Nachman, his great-grandson, developed this idea very deeply. Um, and we will touch upon this later when we look at this idea of near-death experiences and how we understand that in our tradition. Um, but actually, we don't have to go that far because we can access um, that consciousness within this world. The Talmud says uh, that, that one-sixtieth of, of sleep is death. So to some degree, we die in our sleep. So near-death experiences, we almost encounter that when we turn off our mind and rest our mind and allow our soul to lighten up in a way that it can't when the mind is kind of clouding all of our, all of our energy. So here's how, the, here's how the first part of the nigun goes. I, I won't do the second, it's too long. A taste of the world to come. Friends, we're going to start with a poll. So I want you to vote based on this poll. I'm going to put some questions on the screen, see who's in the room here based on their theology. Do you believe in the afterlife? Of course, these are oversimplifications, but where do you best fall out? Number one, I completely reject it as silly. Number two, I don't believe, I don't really believe, but who knows? Number three, no clue. Number four, I vaguely believe, but have few perspectives on it. And number five, I believe deeply in an afterlife and have many ideas of what it might be like. Okay, so uh, again, never perfect options, but choose the one that best fits where you are and submit that vote. We'll give you a few seconds. It's always tricky when there's two of you in the room, when one of you is like, I reject it. The other's like, I love it. And um, so you can, uh, you can either make a concession and vote in the middle or one of you can uh, <laughs> cast your vote. <laughs> okay, let's take five more seconds and then we will uh, see the results on the screen. As I like to say, uh, as of late, that with the, the new Pew study is coming out and perhaps our polls are even more accurate. The scientific study from our polls here in Zoom are even more accurate. Oh, here we go. Wow, wow. 0% of the people in the room reject afterlife as silly. I guess you wouldn't have joined this, or maybe you would have. 0% um, don't really believe. 0% say no clue. 39% say I vaguely believe but have few perspectives on it. 
and 61% say I believe deeply in an afterlife and have many ideas of what it might be like. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for that. Now, I want to offer a few introductory comments, and then we're going to see um, a few um, slides against the idea of afterlife, just to show a, 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 a bit of a balanced perspective. And then we're going to see a few video clips, and then we're going to jump into some text. And I want to just start by saying there are many different ways of learning, especially on a topic like this, and parts of this will speak to you and parts of you it won't. That is to say, some of you might be looking for something really heavy and kind of soul crushing. Some of you might be looking for something kind of soul uplifting. Some of you might be looking for something lighthearted and funny. We're going to kind of go in between those different modes and just know that when it's, uh, it's the part that speaks to you less, that someone else is looking for that part. And also some of you like the spiritual dimension, others of you like the intellectual and textual dimension. Um, I did not choose one track to follow, but rather a few different of those tracks to follow. And thus um, we'll get a taste of all of those. And after that presentation, we'll have the chance for questions uh, and, and thoughts from folks here. Again, there's a ton to cram into three sessions, but we're gonna give it our best shot. Now, let me share my agenda, because um, there's always an agenda. My first agenda is I want to promote wonder and virtue. I want to promote wonder and virtue is my first agenda. My second agenda is I want us to be aware of the range of perspectives. I'm always very skeptical if someone in the name of theology is trying to sell one model, right? Here's what it is. Here's the truth, right? I want us to be aware of a range of possibilities and ideas that emerge. That's the beautiful thing about the Jewish tradition from the rationalist perspective through the mystical perspective. There are many different ideas. The ones that don't speak to you, just let them go. And the ones that speak to you, grab a hold of them, okay? And um, so I'm not gonna sell them. You will, you will pick up the ones that work. The third thing, my third agenda is to reject certainty. I wanna reject the certainty that there is nothing. And I wanna reject the certainty that everything is clear and it looks a certain way. And I wanna promote that doubt is good. And the reason doubt is good is because Judaism is not primarily about belief, but about action, about action, not about belief. Which is to say, the most important thing in regards to our relationship to afterlife is not that we believe X, Y, or Z, but that we, um, whatever we believe moves us to an elevated, uh, virtuous action. Now, this is difficult because if you take a poll, virtually everyone views themselves as virtuous, right? Everyone views themselves as good. And yet the reality is that most people live um, a relatively self-consumed life, right? We eat food, we clean up, we watch, we watch TV, we go do some things that are, we manage our money, we do some things that are fun, right? That's not a critique of the human condition, it's the reality. And what we're trying to do based on our tradition is to say, how do I wake up with a different attitude? Yes, I have to take care of myself, but I wake up understanding that the most central meaning in life is to give back, is to serve. That the first question I emerge with is, how can I serve others today? With my mouth to uplift other spirits, with my hands to reach out, with my body, how do I, how do I be of service to others today? It's easy to say, oh, I remember six months ago I helped someone. I'm a good person. But Judaism says it's a daily question. Ayeka, where are you? Hineni, I wake up and ready to go. So how can afterlife theology play a role in reframing our life as such? If you ask the, uh, the typical American, what is life about? They might say happiness, the pursuit of happiness. That's just not a Jewish answer, right? Happiness is a part of life, but Judaism is not obsessed with the question of happy life. Judaism is obsessed with the question of the meaningful life, right? If it was all about bliss, then the Jewish model would be about monks living on a hilltop, meditating, trying to get spiritual enlightenment and trying to find bliss and happiness. But instead, we engage in learning and in debate and in service, things that are hard work and not necessarily just joyful in their essence, but things that repair the world, repair the self, and elevate um, our consciousness in that, in that approach. And so um, I also, one other agenda before we jump in, 
I wish to make the Jewish record clear on afterlife. There has been a huge Jewish cultural misunderstanding over the past decades that Jews don't believe in afterlife. Oh, if you're Christian, of course you do, but if you're Jewish, you don't. Jews don't believe in this. This is, of course, completely untrue. And while it is true that Judaism in a liberal Jewish tradition and in a traditional Jewish tradition undoubtedly places deeper emphasis upon our actions in this world than it does upon our belief in the next world or upon our, our, our dogmas or belief in as, as such, that nonetheless, even though while this world is primary, the theologies are very rich in regards to uh, what is to come. But that, that this belief in an afterlife is not meant to be mere comfort, the opiate of the masses. It is also helpful to enable others to engage more productively in a broken world. It's the teleological question. It is how does the theology of afterlife actually improve this world? And so here I think there's another moral component. The other moral component is if we believe there is justice, ultimately, then, sorry, let me reframe that. If we believe there is no justice, ultimately, in the world, then why not just engage in vigilante justice and in revenge killings, right? If we think there's no ultimate justice and no ultimate judge, why don't we just live based on hedonism and, um, and whacking the other guy who, who got us? Here's how one uh, Jewish thinker said it. If there is nothing after this life, then the Nazis and the Jewish children, sorry, not on the slide yet, then the Nazis and the Jewish children they threw alive into the Auschwitz furnaces have identical fates. If I believed such a thing, I would either become an atheist or I would hate God who had created such a cruelly absurd universe. And so a belief in an afterlife is also a belief that there's a moral order. There's ultimately a justice for a person who murders an innocent child or, um, or for a Hitler who commits a mass atrocity against 6 million Jews and others. Okay, so friends, we're all coming here from different spaces and I, and I wanna name this. Some people here in the Zoom or in the recording are here for intellectual curiosity or spiritual intrigue. Some are here in mourning because they've lost a loved one. Some are here in anticipation. They have a sense they only have weeks or months left to live and are very much thinking in the next, in the next stage. And so I just want to name that some ideas may be triggering. They might be triggering of regret in our life or guilt or of discomfort. And this is not meant to be a session merely of spiritual comfort, although some of it may do that, but rather an open exploration of ideas. In that spirit, I want to now start at looking at people who have rejected God and rejected, um, rejected um, afterlife. Here is Nikola Tesla, who was a Serbian-American inventor, electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, and futurist in the early 20th century. And he wrote to me, the universe is simply a marvelous mechanism, and the most complex forms of human life as human beings are nothing else but automatic engines controlled by external influence. Indeed, we are nothing but waves in space and time, which when dissolve exists no more. And so I wanna honor the position of scientists or, or, or many scientists who come to the conclusion of a materialistic reality, right? All we know is what we see, all we can believe in is what we can touch. And thus, if the brain dies and the body dies, clearly that's the end of the being because I can't see anymore and nobody can prove to me anything else. That's the idea of Tesla. Let's keep going. Here is Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, you probably heard of an American astronomer, planetary scientist, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author, science communicator in the late 20th century, best known for his scientific contribution uh, to research on extraterrestrial life. He said, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again, that some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I wanna believe that, and despite the ancient and worldwide cultural traditions that a certain afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking. Now, this, this um, approach here shows just how different belief can be um, um, 
for someone who completely rejects the idea of divinity or next life. And in this case, in this slide, a, a Christian's view of life, because again, for Christians, afterlife tends to be more central than for Jews, and obviously a whole different theology. But I'm going to read this first going down, and then I'm going to read it going up. I will live my life according to these beliefs that God does not exist. It is just foolish to think that there is a God with a cosmic plan, that an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to the pain and suffering in the world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose in a world with no God. There is freedom to be who I want to be, but with God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of saving. That's the atheist view on life. Now let's read it from the bottom up, the religious view of life. I am lost and in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think that everything is fine. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you will be, is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to the pain and suffering in the world, that there is a God with a cosmic plan. It is just foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs. And so, friends, I show it this way to show just how opposite these are. Now, many in the room may be agnostic. Maybe there's something I don't exactly know. But to take kind of this absolute believer and this absolute rejecter in contrast, we see how different those worldviews are. Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the most famous German philosophers in the 20th century, asks, is man merely a mistake of God's or God merely a mistake of man? This is a question that emerges in enlightenment, that are humans created in the image of God or is God created in our image? Okay, now what I want to transition to now is show how art and how film, and I'm going to show some funny video clips, not for the sake of entertainment, um, although I'm happy for folks to be entertained, but in order to show just how much American film has influenced, for better or worse, how we picture the next life. Basically, who is the leading theologian of 20th century, 21st century America? Hollywood. Hollywood, more than anyone else, cultivates American theology. It shows us what heaven and hell look like. Now, let's look at some art first. This idea of the sky, the celestial realm, is so commonly portrayed that there is, for example, in Hebrew, the word for, for the heaven, in, in some degree, and the sky is shamayim. It's almost the same word, right? The, 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 the upper realm, the upper, we think of it as upper and lower, And then the common, the common picture of the, of the doorway. There's a doorway to hell, a doorway to enlightenment or heaven, and there is a clear path with nothing in between. And then we think of the, the angels. We think of the angels plucking children from the world, right? The angels with wings dressed in white. We think of the, of the role of color, the role of wings once again, pulling from below to above. And then we think of an out-of-body experience. At what point does the soul leave the body? At what point does the body leave the body? At what point can the mind transcend the bodily realm? And then there's the question of meditation or spiritual enlightenment. In what ways can one intentionally transcend this world or the experiences of the, the tangible materialistic realm. And then, of course, this notion of eternal damnation, of those who have lived a certain way in what is not cold but hot, what is not calm but fiery in these kind of pits of hell. Dante's Inferno, the nine circles of hell, uh, uh, colors the imagination deeply. 
that there's not just this, this lower world, but different realms of, of the lower worlds. And then also the connection, the fact that there's a stairway between these realms, as we're going to see in Jewish thought, the, the, the travel a soul can take beyond this life. Okay, now I'm gonna show six video clips. All of them are ranging between 20 seconds to two to three minutes. Most of them you have seen or will recognize. Most of them are humorous um, or, or have some depth. And we're not gonna we spend the right? whole time looking at film theology. In fact, I wanna do a future series on film and theology. But this time I wanna just touch once again about how these films are coloring our imagination. So um, The Simpsons, I don't know if people still watch it. 30 years ago, I watched The Simpsons. And so <laughs> The Simpsons, it feels really stupid, but it's actually written by really smart folks. So here's the first one. Oh, we need, uh, we need volume. Hold on a second. Let's start that one over. Can we start this over with volume? Yep, just a second. Sorry about that, friends. Uh, it should be. Hmm. It should have are, it. Are, are, are other folks also not hearing it? Okay, so let's yeah, make sure. not hearing it. You are hearing it? No. no, no um, oh, well, the volume is full up. Okay, let me try again. Now? Can, nope. can you all hear it? Nope. No. No. Oh, no. Um, is the volume on your... Yeah, no, the volume's not on mute on my side at all. Uh-oh. Okay, um, let me try to stop the screen share instead and then hop into the clip. Sorry, friends. One second. We'll give it a minute. If we can't resolve it, we'll skip the films. But hopefully we can. Okay. Just a minute. So while we're pulling that together, I, I want to I challenge us to think about how would we cultivate an, uh, an imagery of what a next life could, would look like beyond the art we have seen in museums and beyond the film that we have seen on TV, right? Do we have other tools of imagination or of understanding that have entered our consciousness that we look towards, okay? Let's see if it's better if we go to the original clip here. Nope, it's not letting me do it. Sorry, I thought it was in the PowerPoint. I apologize for that. Do you want me to just go through and at least you can see them? Uh, no, you no, know, no. You we'll know, when to, you we'll do the shell screen, let me just say something. When you do the shell screen, there is a place, I think, on the right or the left that you have to click in order to have the sound. I had a problem when I was subbing yesterday. One of the kids helped me. It, uh, oh, fair. Okay, there you go. Let's try that. Let me start again. Thank you so much. How about now? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay, Hannah, thank you for resolving that for us there. Thank you so much. That first very short clip we see of this notion of slippery slopes in regards to how, that's, how, how that slide uh, leaning upwards ultimately bends downwards and how expectations get managed. Also, it kind of portrays this immediate ascent and descent, right? Homer Simpson dies, immediately he ascends and immediately he descends, okay? That's an idea that we will come to examine later. Let's look at the second Simpsons clip here of Bart Simpson's death. Uh, uh, I, uh, I think the boy's hurt. Oh, for crying out loud. 
Just give him a nickel and let's get going. Uh, I think we should call an ambulance, sir. Hey, cool, I'm dead. Please hold on to the handrail. Do not spit over the side. Por favor, aguantese en la veranda. No escupas en los lados. Great Grandpa Simpson. Please hold on to the Snowball. handrail. Do not spit over the side. We told you to hold on to the handrail. We asked you not to spit over the side. Maybe he must be there one day. I'm Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you? Uh, please allow me to introduce myself. I'm the devil. Oh. <laughs> and you've earned eternal damnation for your lifetime of evil deeds, Bart. Spitting off the escalator just clinched it. Hey, I'm innocent, man. <laughs> Innocent. Everybody's innocent. <laughs> okay, let's just pull up your file here. Okay. <laughs> hmm. Seems to be a mistake. According to this, you're not due to arrive here until the next time the Yankees win the pennant. It's nearly a century from now. <laughs> Boy, is my face red. Bart? Bart? Um, say, is there anything I can do to avoid coming back here? Oh, sure, yeah, but, uh, hey, you wouldn't like it. Oh, okay. See you later, then. Goodbye, Bart. Remember, lie, cheat, steal, and listen to heavy metal music. Yes, sir. Dr. Warner, wanted in radiology, please. Dr. Warner. Oh, Bart. Okay, friends. So here we see also a lot of typ typical ideas um, around, once again, the ascent and the descent the celestial skies and the, far, the fiery pits of hell. We see this idea of, of judgment. And then we also see this idea of, 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 an early, of an early death, too early of a death and a return to the body. Once again, something we'll see around near-death experiences. We see empirically that virtually, virtually everyone who has a near-death experience pledges to live radically different. And yet empirically, we know that that lasts very short. People fall almost immediately back into their old patterns of life with, 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 with some rare exceptions. Um, and in this case, he's even warned, you'll come back unless you want to live differently. And he says, no, don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. Okay, now here's a really short, uh, um, funny one. <laughs> this is pretty funny from South Park. Hello, newcomers and welcome. Can everybody hear me? Hello? Can everybody, okay. Uh, I'm the health director. Uh, it looks like we have about 8,615 of you newbies today. And for those of you who were a little confused, uh, you are dead and this is hell. So abandon all hope and uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, we're now going to start the orientation process, which will last about, hey, wait a minute, I shouldn't be here. I was a totally strict and devout Protestant. I thought we went to heaven. Yes, well, I'm afraid you were wrong. I was a practicing Jehovah's Witness. Uh, you, uh, you picked, picked the wrong religion, religion as well. Well, who was right? Who gets into heaven? I'm afraid, I'm afraid it was, was the Mormons. Mormons. Yes, yes, the, the Mormons were the correct answer. <laughs> okay, so so he, he says here, you picked the wrong religion. You picked the wrong religion. The correct answer was Mormon, right? You should have been Mormon, <laughs> right? So no disrespect to the Mormons, but there is this idea in, in, his, in the history of religious conflict that there is one true religion, right? And if you pick the right one, you made it. And if you chose the wrong one, you're, 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 you're down there in hell. This is a very common idea throughout history. Okay, now the next one we're gonna see comes from The Good Place. Um, if you've never seen this uh, Netflix series, um, it's something worth checking out. It is based on this idea of, um, you, you, well, I, I, you know, as you will see, that, um, that there is this good place that people can go to. After it, it is a comedy, but it's a philosophical comedy. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, 
every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares? No one's watching. We were watching. Surprise. <laughs> anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. Your true soulmate is here too. That's right, soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate, and you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place, sponsored by Otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're going to feel every day. Okay, friends. Once again, my goal here is not to accept or reject Hello, clips, everyone. To, mock, to mock them or, 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 uh, or not, but to just once again show just how influential they are in our understanding this notion of a point system this notion of kind of a return to our body or our youthful body and then finding a new soulmate or something like this. Okay, we have two more. Here's probably the most famous one that emerges before all those others in this movie you probably all saw, Defending Your Life. And this is courtroom scene one. In, in courtroom scene one, what happens in Defending Your Life in this film, if you recall, is there are judges and there's a court. And you have to defend the way you lived your life in front of in front of these people after watching video clips of moments in your life. Here we go. Is still held back by the fears that have plagued him lifetime after lifetime. I believe that I can show without a shadow of a doubt that he must once again be returned to Earth to work on this problem. May we begin in childhood, please? Could we go to 11419? By the way, Mr. Miller, that signifies you're 11 years, four months, and 19 days old. Is that clear? I think so. Well, in other words, if I said 9217, you would be nine years, two months, and 17 days old. I understand. Pam, let's pause for a second. I think the audio fell out of sync. There we go. Wow. Realistic, isn't it, Mr. Miller? You're right, it did. Do you want me to move on to the next clip or? Let's just, let's just see if pausing it and restarting okay. it. Hey, Miller. It's close enough. Look what I found. Okay. Come on, give me that. Make me. Stop. Yeah, it. You know why you're not going to make me? Because I'll beat the shit out of you. You couldn't beat the shit out of me. Oh, yeah? Hit him, Daniel! 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 Hit him, Listen, why don't you come over to my house later and uh, I'll help you glue it back together. Okay, friends, so here we see the idea, each of these films are so intense, that one in particular. We see this idea of there being courts and judges and accountability, and the idea that we will have to be able to defend the way we chose to live our life uh, from beginning to end. 
that we can't say, oh, I was a child, and that it's not merely about being good versus evil, it's also about other virtues, the idea of living with fear versus living with courage, such as he did here, that he was afraid to fight back, he was afraid to defend himself, that he lived with cowardice throughout his life is something he'll have to be prepared to defend. And this is also an idea we see throughout, uh, throughout film. And philosophy, as we'll see in Nietzsche's eternal recurrence, the idea of where moral philosophy intersects with afterlife theology is I should live a life such that I would, I would wish to relive it over and over. If I had to relive this life over and over, I would affirm this life, right? Um, I would be prepared to defend this being the best life I could choose, the good life. Um, okay, well, let's go to one last film. Human being. At last. This is from The Matrix. Welcome, Neo. I feel out again. As you no doubt have guessed, I am Morpheus. It's an honor to meet you. No. The honor is mine. Please, come. Sit. Imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in Is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember. Okay, friends. So this is a good way. Uh, this is a good segue because I think that what we see now here is exactly how I want to frame our learning, which is the blue pill, the red pill. The blue pill, we can simply turn off questions of the meaning of life, of what is to come after life, of how this world ultimately operates. And we can just go to sleep. We can have some ice cream and take a nap. Nothing wrong with that. Most people live that way. Or we could choose the red pill to choose to waken up to deeper truths, deeper reality, deeper inquiry. 
And that's what I want to explore in our, in our time together, which is, uh, do we choose to wake up or not? And I asked my children this the other day, would you rather live just in kind of a hedonistic way that was just joyful and fun and meaning and, and feels good, but be totally detached from truth or a broader world? Or, or would you rather actually wake up to the true realities um, of the world? So um, let's go to this, back to the slides. Okay, great. So friends, here's some key terms we're gonna be looking at in this. Um, and the first three we'll, we'll, we'll hash out more in the, in the next slide. Neshama is, means the soul. Nefesh is the spirit. Ruach is, is also a dimension of the spirit. Olam hazeh is this world. And olam haba is the next world. Sheol and Gehenim are words for hell in, in Jewish thought. Yamot HaMashiach are, is the Messianic era. Acharit HaYamim are the days after, the days to come, like in that, in that, in that Messianic era. And Tichiyat HaMetim. So here is where it gets confusing. There is Olam Haba, I guess what in English we would call heaven. But, but first there's Tichiyat HaMetim, the idea that there's not just justice in the next world, but justice in this world. That actually we return back to our body. It's the resurrection. It is the resurrection that is to come. Um, and thus, every soul will leave the body at death, but then there will be a return to that body in this world, in in the days to come. And that is a separate experience from the eternal realm of Olam Haba. Now, we often talk about the soul, but in Jewish thought, there's not one soul, there's five levels of soul, five levels of God consciousness. The first is nefesh. Nefesh is the life force, the awareness of the physical world, the physical body. It is connected with the realm of in Kabbalah, of Asiyah, the world of doing. As we see in Genesis, God breathed the nefesh into the human body. This is the part of us that feels that feels enriched by the sunshine, the part of us that feels elevated by good food. It's the part of us that feels connected through deep breath, right? It's the part of us that is in the realm of, of action. When we exercise, we feel good. We have hormonal reactions. It is the part of us that is animal. It is animal, but it's an, it's an enlightened animal. Then we have ruach. The ruach is the part of the soul connected to emotions. It is about the love and awe of God. It is about the most elevated emotional experience. Think about loving another person. Think about crying and mourning. Think about the avodash believe the work of the heart, right? That is the emotional realm of the soul. Most people don't go beyond those two, right? Not a critique. It's just the kind of the first two dimensions of soul. The third level is neshama, connected to the Hebrew word for breath, neshima. And this is the intellectual capacity of the realm that's beyond the cognition of the brain. It is the conceptual grasp of principles. It's the idea that there's a supernal realm of truth and that there's a dimension of soul that can attach to that realm of truth conceptually. The fourth is chaya, which is communion with the divine. This is a self-nullification that the, my life is not about me, right? Um, and here we're tapping into a divine energy. There's a deeper energy that goes beyond physicality of the nefesh, beyond the emotions of the ruach, beyond the intellect of the neshama, into an, a, a realm of energy that goes beyond. And then lastly, yechida, entering in the pure and transcendent world where we are cleaving to the original light, the or of the Ein Sof the light of the eternal, the light of the infinite. And that is a realm beyond um, the energy that enters the realm of light. And thus, when we see from film and art, this idea of, of light being connected to the idea of a heavenly realm, this is very connected to the idea of the soul of the yechida, the notion that there's a part of the self that is not in any way physical, and is attached to the, the realm of light, the or ein sof. Okay, now here's what Gershom Shalom, a Kabbalah expert, um, how he translated a passage in the Zohar in regards to how we think about life and death. A king has a son 
whom he sends to a village to be educated until he shall have been initiated into the ways of the palace. When the king is informed that his son is now come to maturity, the king sends the matron, his mother, to bring him back to the palace. And there the king rejoices with him every day. The village people weep for the departure of the king's son from among them. But one wise man said to them, why do you weep? Was this not the king's son whose true place is in his father's palace and not with you? So this, of course, this Kabbalistic source is not diminishing the human need for mourning, the human experience of loss, the human crying when a loved one dies. But it is what it's trying to emphasize is a different spiritual perspective that says, of course we feel the loss of a loved one. Of course we cry at the loss of a loved one. But the, but, the, but the Kabbalistic perspective is the rightful place of a soul is not in this world. The rightful place of a soul is in the heavenly palace with the heavenly parent, the heavenly parents. Yes, a soul visits this world temporarily, right? But that is a temporary gift, a temporary gift in a way we'll unpack later, but ultimately um, to ascend. And this is why we don't only mourn a loss of life, but ultimately want to celebrate um, from a Jewish perspective, a Kabbalistic mystical perspective. We want to celebrate a soul's return home, a soul's return home. And that's not just to find comfort in, but also a much deeper theology of how we understand what life is ultimately about. It says in Pirkei Avot, in the Ethics of Our Ancestors, chapter four, Rav Yaakov said, this world is like a vegetable before the world to come, before Olam Haba. Pre prepare yourself in this vegetable so that you may enter the banquet hall. So this flips the Jewish notion of, of the purpose of life on its head. Many people say the purpose of life in, from a Jewish perspective is tikkun olam, make this world better, right? Okay, there's a lot to say about that perspective. Here's what Rav Yaakov says in Pirkei Avot. The purpose of this life is to prepare yourself for the next life, right? We will see this idea consistently, that that is what the purpose of this life is. The purpose is not freedom. The purpose is not repair. The purpose is soul preparation. Because in the next world, you can't, you can't prepare your soul. You're there. It, it is fixed. The gift is an opportunity to either lower your soul or raise your soul. You can either live this life fixated on chocolate cake, right? Or you can fi be fixated in this life and okay, chocolate cake is okay, but you're fixated on a soul, a soul perspective of trying to elevate the soul. He continues, one hour spent in repentance, one hour spent in soul repair and in good deeds in this world is better and more exhilarating than the whole life of the world to come. Yet one hour of satisfaction in the world to come is better than a whole life of this world. And so we think life is so short. What am I going to do? Eat, drink, and be merry. How do I get the fullness of this life? And yet we see the eternal realm of how much, of how um, only one hour in the eternal realm is more valuable than this whole life itself. We don't teach this to our children. We say, oh, there's heaven, hell. We don't really know much about that. We don't know kind of what it is. You know, just try to be a good person, right? But in fact, what, what the rabbis are trying to do here is say, no, no, think about this. Think about this. Because you get one shot in life to cultivate your soul into the eternal realm. This is not meant to just strike fear in people, right? This is meant to be a gift of an opportunity to say, what is my life about? How do I realign my daily priorities as such to understand Oh, and maybe I was wrong. Maybe there's nothing after life. Like my body is just dust and ashes and it goes back into the ground. Oh, so I guess I was fooled. I tried to be a good person for nothing, right? Was that really a loss that we spent time investing in our soul and being a better person, right? If there ended up being nothing, as they say, Pascal's wager, right? But if there was something, right? And I bet right, so to speak, then um, what, is the, what is the consequence or the implication? Okay. Now, I want to skip over these. We're going to come to these next time. What, 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 what the next few slides are about, which we'll come to next time, is showing the historical biblical roots of, of afterlife theology. It's to show that it's not just later rabbinic tradition, but biblical tradition as well. 
So let's skip past those. We'll, we'll, we'll start with those next time. Here's the next Pirkei Avot. It says here, Antigonus of Soho received the tradition from Shimon Hatzadik, who would say, do not be like servants who serve their master in order to receive a reward. Don't do good for the sake of a reward. Don't be like a child who wants to get an allowance or wants to get a good grade. Don't just try to be a good person so you get, you get the heavenly realms. Just be like servants who serve their master, not in order to receive a reward, and let the fear of heaven be upon you. So this is interesting. What he is emphasizing here is that um, it's not just about doing the right thing, but also about our motives, right? That God wants us to be compassionate. God wants us to be empathetic, right? Not just do virtuous acts. Now, I want to I, I want to reinforce the idea from the Jewish tradition. The actions are primary, more primary than the motive. The more important, more important than giving tzedakah, giving, um, donating money or time with, with a totally full heart is donating money, is challenging oneself to give more, right? That's more important. More important than wanting to be a great person is being a great person, doing the right things. And yet they say, we also care about the inner life, the inner life of not just saying I want to be a good person because I'm afraid of what the next world would look like. I want to do it because I want to be godly, because I care about human suffering, because I care about virtue. And yet, here's the problem with this approach. Let's see the next interpretation. It says in Avot de Rabbi Natan, they quote Antigonus of Soho. And it says, do not be like servants who serve their master in order to receive a reward, but be like servants who serve their master not in order to receive a reward and let the fear of heaven be upon you. So here's a story that emerges from that teaching. Antigonus of Soho had two students who repeated his words to themselves and then to their students and their students to their students. They stopped and considered and said, why did our ancestors say this thing? Is it possible that a worker would work all day and not receive their wages at night, right? How could it be someone works and doesn't get paid, right? A person goes to work because they want to get paid. That's why you go to work, right? So too, you're going to be a good person because you want a reward for being a good person. They do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Had our ancestors believed that there is another epoch and that the dead are resurrected, they would not have said this. They stopped and separated from the Torah oh, after they learned this. And the two sects emerged from this moment, the Sadducees and the, Fer uh, sorry, and, 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 and the Bethesians, named for their founders, Sadok and Betos. They used silver and golden vessels every day, not because they were haughty, but because they said the Pharisees have a tradition of living hard lives in this epoch, and they have nothing in the future. Okay, Pam, let's go to gallery mode. Let's come off the slides. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to stop the slides there because I want to hear a few questions and thoughts from folks. But, it, but what, it, what happened in this last interpretation was, whoa, don't set the bar so high. You want people to live virtuously and do it just for the right reasons. In fact, that led to people running away from all virtue and, 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 and all of Torah. So instead, we should not be worried about the motive, having a motive about Olam Haba. Right? We should not be worried of trying to do right things because we're concerned, so to speak, for our souls. And so, so friends, I'm going to pause here. We have many, many slides to continue with in our next two sessions. But I want to hear some questions um, from folks um, that have emerged for you so far today. Um, and, um, and that will help me think about our next two sessions as well. So feel free to unmute yourself. Uh, they can either be questions on something we've covered or questions that we have not covered that you would like to explore in future sessions as well. Yes, yes, Hannah. The one issue that was not addressed at all is the fear of death. You know, we're all afraid to die. This all doesn't uh, overcome it or that. So do you have any uh, anything that addresses this huge fear? Great, great, Hannah, thank you for that, good. We're definitely going to come back to fear of death. Good, Hannah. So I've made a note of that. Okay, who's next? Um, 
Hi, Rajmali. I um, have a few questions. Um, all of the films and everything, and it's great. It um, seems very Christian influenced this perspective of heaven and hell. And, and I wonder how much of our contemporary thinking has been, have, have we let that seep into, into our philosophy and thought? And the other question I have is, um, the Zohar is packed with stuff on the afterlife and also Isaac Luria and the Gilgalim Hanefesh, um, the gates of reincarnation. So maybe touching Amazing. upon that would be interesting. Yes. But Yehuda, we will definitely come back to that. We were definitely going to explore those theologies. And to your first point, you're exactly right. That to the extent of Jewish assimilation into American Christianity and into American Christian ethos, which we sometimes call Judeo-Christian ethics, but really is predominantly an American Christian ethos. We have we have been um, we have been indoctrinated by such an approach of heaven and hell, as we saw in those Hollywood clips. And I showed them precisely to show how those images have colored us so much. Exactly. And in the text we're going to study, we're going to see some similarities and yet big departures from those images. Thank you. Someone else? Yes. Hi, Elizabeth. Oh, you're still on mute, Elizabeth. Okay, sorry about that. Thank you. Nice to see you. Um, in the Jewish afterlife, does Judaism believe that we can connect with or contact our lost loved ones? Amazing question. We are going to explore that question. We're going to explore the question about contact. There are many Talmudic passages and mystical passages that look at that at that at that question. And, um, and, and, and let me say one, let me just say one quick thing, just so I don't keep it all as a teaser. Um, there is a traditional Jewish prohibition against necromancy, against asking for help, asking for someone dead to do things for us. Um, however, bracketing that, um, there is um, a very clear tradition that there can be contact, there can be conversation, there can be presence, there can be engagement, there can be engagement. What, and then what we will see, part of what the Jewish tradition is responding to is an ancient religious ethos that tried to tap into dead spirits to manipulate this world. Okay, so good, Elizabeth, great, we'll come back to that. Time for two more questions. Yes, Lauren and then Susan. Lauren, um, yes. just, just related back to that we don't um, ask a dead person for help. And I understand that there's the whole thing with Shaul and Shmuel. Um, but I also noticed that there's people go to like Rebbe Mayer's grave asking for help. And um, the Svardim have a, a, quite a tradition and the Hasidim have a tradition of going to a grave for help. I've always wondered that it's not a vote Zora, but if, if you can dress it. My other thing is, mm -hmm. yes, I would definitely like to see you go into the whole thing of Gilgulim. I'm fascinated by it. Oh, for sure. We will definitely go into reincarnation and Gilgulim. We'll definitely look at the grave idea. And, you know, by the way, the, the other Jewish theological debate emerges, may we ask angels for help? Because to some degree, those who have been those who have died from this world have passed from this world are in the angelic realm. May we ask angels? Maimonides, Maimonides tradition completely rejects it to the extent that Maimonides, Maimonides Rambam would not sing Shalom Aleichem on at Shabbat because in Shalom, Shalom Aleichem we're asking the angels for help, right? Bless us, bless us, and so he wouldn't sing that. There's also part of the high holidays, high holidays. Um, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur liturgy that asks that asks the angels for help that he rejected, and yet the mystical tradition is quite comfortable with it. The mystical tradition wants to ask the angels to help us. Okay, Susan, you just answered my question. <laughs> okay. So, friends, I want to sum up what we said so far, and excuse me for going two minutes over time. Um, that um, in our first session today, we talked a little bit about Me'en Olam Haba about how one could taste the next world, not only there, but in this world. 
if one chooses to engage in spiritual in that spiritual enterprise. And then we looked at what at the moral enterprise of how our moral um, our moral choices could be impacted or colored by such a theology. This is not just about comfort or discomfort, but actually about a life of virtue and, um, and the value of doubt and questioning and how that informs our behavior. And we looked at some rejections, some rejections. Hey, you know, I'm a scientist or I've never seen it. So why should I believe something I can't see? Then again, can we see love? We know love to be true, but we can't see love, right? Um, someone might say there are things we believe in that we can't see. Actually, seeing is only one way of knowing. Um, and then we looked at various pieces of art and film that told us, reminded us of how we've been told to see the afterlife, what heaven and hell is according to film and art in so many cases. Um, and then we started to look at some Jewish texts which talked about the opposite of what we were told that, oh, Christians talk about the next world, Jews don't talk about that, Jews don't believe in it, or we don't talk about it, right? For two reasons. One, because Jews wanted to differentiate themselves from Christians in America. They wanted to say, oh, the Christians talk about it. We Jews, we're just about this world. And maybe we went too far. And secondly, because of a post-Holocaust theology. Said, oh, if the Holocaust could happen, how could there be a God, right? How could there be, how could there possibly be, uh, okay, we don't want to talk about theology anymore. Let's just talk about ethics. Let's talk about ethics, right? We abandoned a, a religion of ritual and of theology when, in a world of cruelty. And yet what we saw was an opposite idea that said, that said, actually, the Jewish tradition has a lot to say about the notion of a next world. Of course, uh, and we'll see even the idea of dying and coming back is an idea that we don't just see from the, the thousand Christian books written on a topic like that, the thousand Christian films of someone who dies and comes back and says they saw the same thing. We'll see similar Jewish ideas, but also that according to some, this world is about this world. Don't worry about things we don't know about. Just work on this world. But according to other Jewish thinkers, this world is about that world. This world is about repairing this world, repairing our souls in preparation for the next world. And so once again, I share all this, not to convince us anyone of one theology or another, but to put the full richness of our tradition on the table so that we can explore and navigate and find meaning in the richness of millennia of conversations. Thank you again, Pam, for helping me manage this. Thank you all who are showing up in the room and those in the recording. I can't wait to see you next Thursday at 10 o'clock Pacific, one o'clock Eastern for session two. Thank you, truly. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.